So what I'm hearing from parents around the country, and I think this is what you're hearing too, is that you know you try to talk to a parent in another district, and what's going on there is completely different from what's going on in your district. And I think parents don't know where is up at this point, what do I need to do, and what am I even entitled to? Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. In this episode, we are doing a deep dive into the subject of parental and student rights, or from another perspective, the legal obligation that schools have to provide for a child's education and what that means during the COVID-19 pandemic. To talk us through this subject is attorney Catherine Michael, who specializes in education law for both general and special education matters. Through her law practice, Catherine has spent nearly two decades advocating for the rights of all students and helping parents navigate the education and legal system to ensure the needs of their children are met. She's also the author of the forthcoming book, The Exceptional Parents' Guide to Special Education, written to help parents understand their child's education rights and simplify the complexities of education law. When I knew Catherine was coming onto the show, I reached out on the Tilt Together Facebook page and asked for questions you had about advocating for your children during this pandemic. And wow, did you have questions. Thank you to the many of you who sent in great questions. Catherine provided so much valuable information on everything from accommodations and supports during remote learning, IEP requirements, evaluations, homeschooling rights, best practices for dealing with schools, and much, much more. This episode is jam-packed and is essential listening for any parent of a differently wired child, even outside of a global pandemic. All right, and now here is my conversation with Catherine Michael. Hello, Catherine. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here with you today. I think this is such an important conversation for, I think it's always an important conversation because you have such expertise in an area where a lot of parents are really scrambling or or feeling lost in, in terms of what opportunities or possibilities are available for them. But in this time in the world with such unusual school scenarios, I think this is especially relevant. So I'm really excited to get into it with you. Well, I'm, you know, I'm happy to talk about this topic because I think we're actually feeling lost in a lot of ways in all the changes we've had over the last year. And I think um, that there are a lot of things that parents need to know and ways that they can be documenting this. And um, I'll give them a bunch of different tools that they can use to make sure their children are getting services. But I mean, this is a really important conversation for us all to be having right now. Um, just depending on how long the pandemic goes on and what options are going to be available even going into the future. Yeah, absolutely. The landscape is changing and probably will continue to change as opposed to going back to exactly what it looked like before. Before we get into, you know, I have a lot of questions and I actually crowdsource some questions for my community, but can you just take a few minutes and do a more personal introduction of yourself and what you do. I've already read your formal bio, but I always love to hear my guests in their own words, share what they do and why. Yeah. So I am an education attorney and I work in three states. I work in Indiana, Texas, and Michigan. 
Um, I have a law firm called Connell Michael Kerr, and our attorneys are actually licensed in a number of other states beyond the three states that I'm licensed in. So we cover Ohio, Pennsylvania, Alaska, Minnesota. Um, we have contacts in Massachusetts, um, New York. So I get a nice, good view of what how we're doing as a nation in terms of education law, and specifically special education law or kids who have ADHD and are simply under uh, Section 504 plans. Um, I've been doing this now for a little bit over 20 years and um, really exclusively in this area. And I, I've gotten to see a lot of changes. And I've also gotten to see the biggest thing is that parents often have no idea of the rights that they have, how to advocate for them, and what steps um, are really going to be available to them to to really changing their child's educational plan. And that not only applies to parents who have children with special needs or in Section 504 plans, but parents who have children who are having disciplinary issues or just need tutoring, most parents really have no idea. Um, I got into this area because my background was in healthcare law. And it was that was where I had worked during my summers in law school, and that was where I initially started um, in practice. And one thing that we saw as a hospital is that a lot of kids who had special needs, who, for instance, had had a brain tumor and um, were now getting chemotherapy and were on on a homebound program, um, could get many services, if any. And I was really surprised at how difficult it was for these parents. And I had a good friend who was practicing in this area. And I came to realize that there are so many laws out there, um, and including one a, a really big federal law, which is called the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And when I say big federal law, it provides the entire framework for parents' rights within special education. And I realized that there's no penalty for schools not following these laws. And the way it's structured is that parents are the only real enforcers of that. So it, it was just amazing to me how many families were out there not able to get services. They didn't know about the laws and the schools weren't telling them. And so, you know, I took my first case and, you know, one case snowballs into another. And it was really fascinating to me how many problems were out there that there was a simple law that addressed um, but the parents just didn't know it existed or what they could ask for. Hmm. Yeah, it is kind of a wild frontier, I th I think. And, you know, I do this work through Tilt Parenting. I am an avid researcher. I read all the books and I'm tapped into many communities. And I still really struggle with even understanding, you know, what what accommodations I should be asking for or what, what are our legal rights. And so I think it's so just helpful knowing that there are people like you out there who can hold people's hands and, and walk us through this process. So what I want to start with as a, as a question is just kind of looking at the landscape of where we are right now, especially due to COVID-19, you know, just what have you seen that's changed for, for families who have kids with IEPs or 504s or who are kind of navigating IDEA and uh, within remote learning or hybrid, like what is what's happening right now? 
I, the first thing that happened as all of us were sort of shocked um, by this pandemic is that many schools went virtual. Um, some schools closed their doors altogether. And I think the biggest challenge that we're seeing right now with what parents are facing is that school districts are all doing different things. And we're not seeing a consensus. Even right now, we're seeing some school districts that are going to a hybrid model, others that are fully back in person, others that are still virtual. And the biggest issue is parents getting true accessibility into these programs. And for children who are on IEPs, right, we're talking about a a big gamut of kids, right? You have kids who just have a specific learning disability that may be just specific to math, let's say, all the way to kids who have really severe cognitive impairments or need ABA therapy and who cannot access a virtual program at all. And we're seeing in some situations, school districts try and treat all of these kids just alike, where they're saying, here's our virtual model, um, best of luck to you. And that is not how it should be. But that is the biggest change that I've seen, is that we basically took a system that has to be individualized and made it, in some respects, a one-size-fits-all. And here's what we're going to give you, and you don't necessarily get an option for something else. And that is a huge change, right? Not only for parents who have kids on IEPs, but parents who have children who are just in a general education curriculum. And the other change that I've seen is that we see school districts who are embracing this, who are actually finding true novel ways to address needs across spectrums and to really bring education into people's homes um, to ensure true accessibility. Like I'm seeing school districts that are basically Um, making sure that every family has a computer that's working, has a computer that has the appropriate software. If they can't afford internet services, they're making them freely available. They're contracting with the local internet providers. And I'm seeing other schools that say, we'll make the Wi-Fi available in the parking lot if you can get to school. Um, It really is um, quite startling, the difference. And so what I'm hearing from parents around the country, and I think this is what you're hearing too, is that they're just, you know, you try and talk to a parent in another district and what's going on there is completely different from what's going on in your district. And I think parents don't know where is up at this point. What do I need to do? And what am I even entitled to? Yes. And we also understand that this is hard for everyone, right? This is hard for teachers. This is hard for school administrators. This is uncharted territory for so many of us. And as parents, when we have kids at home who are really struggling with whatever model their school has put forward, or they have needs that aren't being met or IEPs that aren't being enforced, we feel stuck. So, you know, let's start there. You know, parents listening to this who are shaking their heads saying, yes, 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 this is what's going on with us. How vocal can we, should we be? Have our rights changed? Are there... I don't know if the law has changed right now. Are we trying to continue to work within a system and a framework that's based on an old model? And where does that leave us? So the law has not changed at all, nor has the enforcement of it. And when we say the law, everybody is going to have, first of all, all special education falls under the sort of the one umbrella Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And then the state's 
can add to that law. They can add more, like, for instance, Michigan um, made it where schools have to provide education until you're 26 versus the federal law says 22. So states can add rights for parents. They can't take them away. So when we look at this big umbrella law, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, everybody calls it IDEA. And when you look at this law, it is, it's not been suspended. It's not been modified, nor have any of the enforcement of those provisions. And what this law provides is something that is commonly known as FAPE, and that means a free, appropriate public education. And so what we do is we look at what programming can be provided that's going to be appropriate and that it's going to be free. And when we look at what is appropriate, it needs to meet that child's needs. It needs to be accessible to that child. It needs to be um, something that covers and is comprehensive of their needs, whether they have needs in the area of speech therapy, um, whether they have counseling needs, social work needs. So it may be modified in terms of what we can expect from our IEPs um, and what we can expect, what looks like programming, but the law itself is still there and still requires that schools be, even in a global pandemic, providing appropriate programming. So what that looks like for a child who is in a virtual program is let's say you have a child with a specific learning disability. They would need instructional level materials versus grade level materials. That means if, for instance, they're reading at a sixth grade level and they're in an eighth grade class, they need to have things provided to them at their level so that they can navigate it. Um, That may include, for instance, if if they're reading a novel in one of their classes, even that provided as an audio book as well, so they can keep up with those class discussions. It may mean that that teacher needs to be doing a lot more one-on-one or small group instruction to make sure that they're understanding the curriculum. It may mean that the school, for instance, in other areas is giving them additional software access to work additionally on math problems, additional tutoring. So that is what is going to be appropriate. If we have a child who has cognitive impairments to the level that they can't participate in an online program, this is where a school would be looked at to what type of home training are they providing? What type of social work services are they providing? Um, Are we at a safe enough time that they can actually provide a one-to-one aid for that child even in their home to help them sort of try and navigate an educational curriculum? If a school is going to go partially back in session, should children with with those type of needs be the ones who are in session? And if a school really can't meet that child's needs, are there private or therapeutic day placements that are open at this time that we can enroll that child in? Um, The schools still have a lot of responsibilities, but, you know, coming back, if the only enforcers of these laws are the parents... You can see where schools who are already a little bit overwhelmed are just, again, saying one size fits all, we'll do what we can, and then we'll see if parents bring what are called educational due process actions to try and enforce some of this, um, which many parents don't even, they don't even know it's a right that they have. Yeah, I think that is a big barrier for so many families is just knowing that, that you not only do you have the right to ask for these things, but there is a formal process for requiring or stating this is this is something we're legally 
is legally available to us or we have a legal right to, but even starting that process. So I'm asking this as someone who moved back from living abroad for a number of years and had to start navigating this process within the New York City um, Public School District. And it just was so overwhelming to me. So how do people even learn about this? How do you in, in your role get information out to parents so that they can understand what their legal rights are? We'll be right back after this quick break. I'm on the road this month and oh man, am I missing my sweet kitties, Haskell and Lua. They've been a part of our family for more than two years and I'm so grateful they're keeping Darren such good company while I'm away. If you're getting a new pet soon, you're probably already thinking about everything you'll need to buy. Food, toys, a cozy bed, doggy bags or litter boxes. Something you may not be thinking about though is pet insurance. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com parenting. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com parenting. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. If you listen to this show, you probably know that at least one in five children is differently wired. But did you know that approximately one in two women will experience hair thinning? If you're part of that 50%, you are absolutely not alone. But because hair thinning for women isn't something people openly talk about, going through it can feel lonely and frustrating. So why not do something about it with Nutrafol? Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Everyone's root causes of hair thinning are different, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth isn't going to cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow throughout different stages, postpartum, menopause, even for different lifestyles like a plant-based diet. To get your personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes, you can take a simple hair wellness quiz on Nutrafol.com. And because there's no prescription required, you can quickly get set up online with free shipping and automated deliveries, which make it so much easier to stick with your new hair care routine. See results in three to six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code TILT. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com promo code TILT. That's Nutrafol.com promo code TILT. I think the first thing parents need to understand is number one, that they have legal rights and their legal rights are far more vast than they can possibly imagine. Um, I think that the more parents can start to read websites, just putting in special education law, um, I think it is worth a parent 
you know, just like we would if we had a medical diagnosis or we needed a car worked on, we might get a, a consultation, right? It is just to sit down with a education attorney in your state or, you know, one to just go over things with you to say, here are the things that you can do. Here's what you need to know. Um, I, for years, you know, we did, we do a, a lot of consultations every week. I do a lot of parent seminars. Um, I have actually a, a book coming out that is supposed to be, uh, it's called the exceptional parents guide to special education that is trying to make this simple for parents, um, simple and affordable for them to learn this. Um, and that's available on Kindle and Amazon, but it's, I think it really is essential for parents to be not only beginning to feel empowered, but knowing that they can access these materials online, they can get the books, and then it's learning to actually ask for them in an empowered way where they know that they're entitled to these services. For instance, let's just talk about these services for a second. A child who has an appropriate education should not only have an IEP that covers their areas of need. So when we talk about autism, we're not only talking about their academic deficits, uh, a child's you know academic deficits. We're talking about behavioral challenges, um, speech therapy needs, occupational therapy needs, recreational PE needs, um, social work needs, counseling needs. Um, if they need a board certified behavior analyst to come in and really do what's called a good you know, functional behavior assessment and, and create a good behavior intervention plan. The idea that a parent should have an IEP that only has one goal, despite a child's sort of myriad of needs, is ridiculous. I mean, these IEPs are supposed to be really comprehensive documents. And in New York, we actually, New York State, we tend to see, you know, slightly better documents um, in terms of an IEP than we'll see throughout the Midwest or, for instance, rural Texas. I can tell you <laughs> the schools everywhere um, have the same requirements, and I see a, a vast difference. But that IEP should be a comprehensive document. If a parent doesn't agree with the programming that their child is being provided, every parent in every state is supposed to be given a procedural safeguards booklet following every IEP conference. And that procedural safeguards booklet is supposed to explain to parents, here are your rights. Most parents read these things and they're looking at them and they're like, gosh, there is so much legalese here. I, I can't make heads or tails. But basically, that lays out how they can request what's called an educational due process or they can file a complaint for procedural violations in the state. So I'll explain the difference. So let's say right now your child is not getting speech therapy. You're in a school district that's even had a hybrid program right now, or they're all virtual still, and there are a ton of school districts that are still all virtual, you would just file a complaint with your state department of education. And in almost every state, those complaint forms are online. And these are only for where a school is, is basically not following an IEP or the service hours. So you would just file a complaint saying, for instance, Johnny is supposed to be receiving one hour of speech therapy every week. We haven't received any hours of speech therapy since March 12th. Um, we, we need this to occur. The state is supposed to step in, take a look at this, 
and basically put an order in against that school district that they have to provide all of that speech therapy as compensatory speech therapy, and they immediately have to begin that process. Um, These procedures aren't, there's not wiggle room in them. A school either, you know, if it's in the IEP, they have to do it. And so it's, that's really where a parent needs to know that they have those rights. The school has to follow that IEP. If a school is not providing an appropriate program, and I'll give an example of that because I see it almost every day, I'll get an IEP from a parent who has a child with a lot of needs. Let's say this is a child with autism, and this child has an IEP that has one or two goals where I'm not seeing any behavior goals. I'm not seeing any social skills goals. I'm not seeing any self-advocacy goals, you know, depending on the child's levels. I'm not seeing a lot of life skill goals. Um, I'm not seeing related services, then what we do is we challenge the appropriateness of that IEP and we file an administrative action. These are not things where a parent is in, you know, a state court um, where they're sitting on on a witness box testifying. These are administrative actions filed with your state's Department of Education. And the Department of Education in that state basically then takes it and they have to assign an independent hearing officer. And that independent hearing officer looks at everything. They hear from the experts. They conduct what's called a, a due process hearing. And that's where you know parents can call their experts. School can call their school psychologist. Um, they look at all the child's needs. They review all the documents. And then if they feel that the parent has a good case, then they'll basically find the school in violation of FAPE. And then they will say the school needs to, for instance, have a board certified behavior analyst in to observe that classroom or meet with the parents to provide parent training. They need to be conducting speech therapy virtually. They need to be conducting social skills training virtually. They need to find computer programs and software programs that are going to be accessible to that child. That's the type of thing we're seeing right now with those due process hearings. Um, In the past, they would just put in place an order of here's what's going to happen in the classroom. So for parents who are in an in-person program, that's the type of thing that that the hearing officer would order uh, would be put into the classroom. And the really good thing for parents to know is that there is a prevailing party um, fee-shifting statute and idea, and it's in the state laws as well, that it basically says if a parent prevails and changes the legal status of the parties, that parent can seek their reasonable attorney's fees from the school district. And this is true in a lot of civil rights laws, where basically you are, if you're successful in your action, the school will pay your attorney's fees. And so this allows experienced special ed attorneys, like we screen cases. For me, if a parent can't afford a case, that, that doesn't concern me at all. What I'm looking at are cases that are going to be successful where I'm looking at this IEP saying there's nobody in their right mind who can say that this is appropriate because we know we'll be able to get paid. And so that is you know, one thing for parents to be aware of. If you're working with somebody who's experienced and you have a really good case, no matter what state you're in, they'll normally make either you know, a payment plan or they'll talk to you about you know, other options. Um, but that those cases are things that are designed so that civil rights attorneys can afford to take them, which is why you know there's a prevailing party fee shifting statute, and parents aren't going to have to pay school 
attorney's fees unless they filed this this action just uh, like as a frivolous action. Um, I'll give you an example of what would be constituted frivolous. Your child's been out of that school for five years, and you have been advised by a number of attorneys that the statute of limitations is two years, and you decide to file this pro se on your own. You keep filing numerous motions, and you're doing things simply to harass the school district. That's what triggers you know, an action being frivolous. There's no grounds for it. Um, a parent simply you know, saying my child's IEP is inappropriate, they're currently a child in the school, that's not something that's going to be frivolous, unfounded, or being filed just to harass. And most attorneys, I imagine, would do a consult to ensure that there is a case there before hiring that attorney, correct? Yes. And that's why parents, you know, in whatever state they're in, you need to find somebody who is experienced in your state um, who has done this. I mean, even if you have to find somebody out, you know, outside of your state who's experienced and, and then have them hire local counsel in your state, it's really essential that it's someone who practices in education law. Just like if you were looking for someone to do spinal surgery, you're not going to go to a podiatrist or a gastroenterologist. You really do need somebody who is familiar with this area. And that person is going to screen your case. They're going to explain how it works. Um, if this is an area they're familiar with, then they'll basically work with you to understand, you know, here's what we expect going in. Here's how this works. Here's why I think your case is good. Here's why I think we may have some problems. Here are some other options. And if a parent doesn't necessarily have a good case at this time, a lot of attorneys hook them up with what are called parent advocates to help sort of navigate them through the process. Um, parent advocates are just lay people. There are lots of them in, in New York State. I mean, there are people who actually even do it for a living um, and in Texas as well, where they basically just come in and say, I'm going to help you navigate this system, understand the IEP process, understand the procedural safeguards. Um, they're not supposed to give legal advice. They're not supposed to represent you as an attorney because obviously they're lay people. But at the same time, they can certainly, most of them have been through the process themselves. A lot of them have training and that's a question to ask if you're getting one too. But that's certainly available to parents as well. So what I'm hearing from this, and I'm, I'm looking over the questions that I crowdsource as well, my hunch is that a lot of families start with this school. So they have an IEP, they recognize the IEP accommodations are not being enforced right now. And so they're trying to work with this school. And I think my hunch is, again, that many parents are not realizing that there is a kind of straightforward legal process to writing that educational due process that complaint and and going through those formal systems. So do you recommend that parents start by talking with the school or what's the best way to navigate this if you're working with a school who is not meeting the needs of the IEP or the 504? I, I think the very first thing you do as like in all relationships in life is talk about it. Um, if I have a parent who comes to me who's never voiced their concerns to the school even if they've got a good case, my first thought is go and talk to them and see what they're willing to do at this point. So if a parent has a child who hasn't been getting appropriate services, you know, I would 
schedule an emergency IEP and say, my child needs these services and they need them now. Most parents have brought up their needs. This is 99.9% repeatedly to schools. Um, And in that case, that's where I think you can say at this point, look, I've talked to them about this until I'm blue in the face. I, I can't do it again. And if that's the case, I think you certainly may want to at least consult with someone and say, what are my options? What, what advice do you have, especially in the, you know, given the climate of that individual state? But I think, you know, all of us at this point in time, I mean, COVID has changed a lot. You know, we want to give schools a little bit of grace and understanding. And so if things were good with your school prior to this, and things are at a level that when I say livable, I mean, your child is not really horribly regressing, or you have a child who um, is able to access the system, then I think talking to the school first and seeing if you can work it out is, is absolutely the way to go. If on the other hand, you have a child who you're looking at and saying they're losing some of the speech gains they have been ma- making they are not able to access online education at all. I've already spoken to my school. I mean, that's where I don't think you have to sort of keep trying other means. I think that's where you can just, you know, jump to, I need a consultation with an attorney or I'm going to talk to an advocate. I need some changes now. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, 
monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. So let's talk about IEPs for a minute. You mentioned having an emergency IEP meeting. I got a couple questions about this and I'm going to combine them. So first of all, there's the idea that are there special accommodations that we can be looking for right now, specifically in cases of hybrid or remote learning, you know, that have to do with whether or not the video has to stay on for Zoom and things like that. And then for parents who are just now in the midst of an IEP process, they're struggling to know what should they be asking for? Should they be planning for what they need now? Should they be planning for post-pandemic life? So you can have an IEP meeting as many times as you need it in the year. And if things are going to change on a quarter-by-quarter basis, let's say we have a school that's virtual now, they're going um, hybrid in eight weeks, then they're going full-time, you want to address the IEP you need right now. You do not need to be looking nine months into the future. You need to focus on what your child needs now. And so if you have that IEP now to address the virtual needs or the hybrid needs or some of the changes that are going on in an in-person setting right now, there's nothing to say you can't have that meeting again in six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks to say, okay, things have changed, needs have changed, I need a new IEP meeting. And that goes even when we're not in the pandemic. Um, For instance, let's say your child Um, has a diagnosis of ADHD, and you decide to get another evaluation and find out your child has a specific learning disability, it doesn't matter if you had a meeting six weeks ago, you convene a new one now. If you have a child who has a mental health condition and you see it worsening, you can have that meeting three or four times a year until you have an IEP that is going to be supportive of your child and is going to sort of roll with their needs. Um, The same is true as if you have a child who's meeting the goals in their IEP. You don't need to wait that full year. I mean, the year requirement is the minimum amount of times a school has to meet. They have to meet at least once a year. Um, But that IEP can be modified repeatedly through the year to meet the child's needs. Hmm. So interesting. I had no idea. A lot of parents have no idea. I mean, I get parents all the time who just, they assume it's just a document that goes for a full year, sort of like, you know, we a lot of us have car leases, right? You know, it's a three-year lease um, or a one-year lease. So we don't realize that things can be changed. And I think that is one of the biggest things that I, I see from parents where we have an IEP that really needed to be changed six months ago. What about for families who have decided that, you know, this remote learning 
thing is really not working for my child or the way the school district is managing remote learning because it looks so different, right, from school to school. And so they're saying, okay, for now, I'm going to homeschool my kid until things get back to quote unquote normal. Do they still have legal rights if their child has an IEP and they've pulled them out for what could be one to two years of homeschooling to have, for example, maybe social skills therapy or other types of accommodations have those services continue? Um, yes and no. So I'll answer that in two ways. Um, the first is if you're homeschooling your child, you still have the right to get what we would call consultative services from the school. That means that they can make a homeschool based document. Some school districts will still provide related services. Other school districts will just provide sometimes like guidance, access to the school psychologist, updated evaluations, but you lose a lot of rights. Um, so in those situations in school districts where schools are going virtually and a parent is not able to access it, what I say to parents is don't withdraw your child, just send email after email to the school on my child can't access this. They can't do the work. We need to do something else. And the school has to do that. There's not an in between. They can't say your child is truant if they're not able to access it. So in some of those school districts, what a parent actually has to have happen is a teacher doing like a one-to-one Zoom or Skype or another service where they basically have the teacher guide the child through those materials. Um, other things that parents can ask for is actually to have those ma- weekly materials mailed to them, to have everything in hard copy, to have the textbooks not digitalized, but actual textbooks delivered. So if your child is one who is not great on computers, but you can put out a little math worksheet, that's something that can be done. Um, you know, beyond that, when we have something, you know, let's say they're sending the hard copy materials, you can ask your school to have a teacher or an aide or another individual, again, do that sort of live session, go over the work with the child, um, record the math lessons so they're watching it as a video. There are a lot of options, and that's a much better way to go than to just basically sort of throw up your hands because then you've really let the school off the hook. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of parents do. That's why we all get the this is one size fits all if it doesn't work. When parents just bail from the system, then they're like, hey, well, you know, that's 15 less kids who we don't have to manage in that respect. Um, You know, I, I am a big believer that most people who go into education go because they want to teach children. But in our day and age where idea is underfunded, teachers are, you know, usually battling with administrations, I certainly see more now than I even did 20 years ago, where if children who have special needs just leave the district or homeschool, schools are like, again, that's that's a child we're not going to have to spend time on. And so I just, I don't necessarily think parents who want to throw up their hands should do that. They should really demand that accountability because that's what the law does require is that appropriate, accessible program. Mm -hmm. What about evaluations? So people are getting mixed messages about whether those evaluations that are done by a school district have to be done in person or if they can't be done virtually. And so there are parents who are waiting for evaluations or assessments because nothing is happening in real life and in certain school districts right now. 
what can parents expect or push for when it comes to getting those types of assessments from the school district? So evaluations, number one, can be done virtually. Um, And that does not mean that every testing measure can be given virtually. But that means that some of the base level assessments may be able to be done. And I I certainly am seeing school districts around the country do different things. Um, I am seeing some school districts do as much as they can virtually and then have the child come into a sort of specialized testing area where the test administrator is literally across the room from the child, but it seems to work. Um, I'm seeing others, you know, go ahead and just make sure everybody's got the proper equipment on. And again, they're just doing the ones that must be administered in person in person. Because the problem is schools can't postpone these indefinitely. And if we're talking about a pandemic that's really, you know, it's expected to get worse this winter. Um, And so a a child can't go a year without an evaluation, especially if they've moved into a school district, you haven't had an evaluation since kindergarten. So schools would be expected to do it to the extent they could. Um, That may not mean that they can give the WISC um, or some of the other sort of standard measures, but it it does mean that they can still do what they can. They can look at the child's work. Um, There are some of the Different testing companies are making this virtual, um, especially the use. We're seeing some um, evaluators use two or three cameras so they can see the child's work simultaneous to you know being in front of the child. They can have one on the top that's actually looking down to watch them write, and we're seeing that with some of the OT assessments. And so all of that should be able to be accomplished, right? I mean, the the only thing that you have that's going to be different is sometimes, you know, we, we say these testing measures have to be done in distraction-free environments. Part of the problem with doing some of them at home is you have a, a kiddo whose dog is coming up, the phone is ringing, um, and you may not get the same type of results. Mm-hmm. That makes total sense. All right. So, This is a pretty specific question, but I I thought it was interesting because I also have a hunch that many listeners have kids in similar situations. This member of my community wrote, can a district take disciplinary measures against a student for non-participating if non-participation is due to the lack of available parent guardian to provide that constant support in a remote format? So, you know, a student who's home with a parent, but the parent has to work during school hours. And so they're just not attending to the school work. You know, interestingly, that is a, that's a really good question because we are seeing cases across the country where schools are attempting to do this. And what we're arguing in those cases is that a school not making the program accessible enough that the child can do it on their own and then reporting that parent to, for instance, Department of Child Services or reporting that child is truant is simply the school taking retaliatory action, trying to push that child out of the district. Because what happens most in those cases is that a school can only go after you for truancy if your child is enrolled in a public school. What most parents don't know is you just withdraw your child from a public school and there's no truancy. And so those are certainly retaliatory actions. So what a school is supposed to do. Let's say you have a child who, uh, 12 years old, learning disability. Um, and I use 12 because really we shouldn't, you know, it depends on the state, but you shouldn't probably leave children 
under 12 home alone, but parents are going to do it right. They're going to run to the grocery store. It's, it's like the nature of life and you get some really responsible eight year olds. So you can run to the grocery store and be fine. But we're seeing schools say, you know, like Johnny turns off his camera. The teacher says, don't turn it off. And then he just, you know, blanks off. We're seeing a teacher count that as an absence. And then we're seeing parents get these truancy forms. Really, what should be done is the school should be sending letters to the parents with how do we make this accessible? Um, What I see some school districts doing is basically, again, using the handwritten materials. And when I say handwritten, typed materials being mailed to the house, asking the child to complete those, offering parent training, offering, you know, I see some getting teachers on emergency licenses, offering to do evening um, classes for these students offering to record things, doing what we call sort of like um, a almost a flipped math instruction where they just send them a short video on watch this video and then we'll meet with you 20 minutes this evening to go over how to do it. We'd really expect schools to be engaged in that because the problem, as all of us might imagine, is when you have one parent households and that parent has to work to pay the mortgage, um, and to pay for the groceries, we're talking about a, a situation where they don't have an option. And the question then is, schools are public entities. They are not, I mean, it's like the post office. It's like the Social Security Administration. They have one job, and that's to figure out how to educate the children within their populace. And we know that there is a huge population in, in the United States of one-parent households. And we know that a lot of these one-parent households, that parent has to be working. So we need schools to be stepping up and saying, how do we address this? Should we be having teachers who don't necessarily work on Monday and Tuesday, but they work on Saturday and Sunday, or they work on evenings where we're really thinking outside of the box? Our eight to three schedule, right? I mean, it's one of those things that maybe it works when we're not in a pandemic. But we certainly need to consider, are there ways that we can change school now to actually and truly meet our students' needs? Thank you. That is such a helpful answer. And I mean, this whole conversation, you've shared so many great things to think about. You know, again, I've been doing this work for a long time, and I learned a ton. And I appreciate everything that you shared today. And before we say goodbye, Can you let listeners know where they can learn more about you if they want to connect with you? And then also, I don't know if you have one, if there's one thing you want listeners to leave this conversation knowing, what would that be? Yeah, so I'll start with one thing I want them to remember is that there are, not only are there laws that protect their child, that they shouldn't be scared of enforcing those laws. Um, I want more parents to understand that while we love our dedicated teachers, sometimes they, they need parents' help too to really push and change administration and the funding for schools. Um, so don't be afraid of the process. Don't be afraid of advocating for your child because unfortunately in this world, you could be the, your child's only voice and you don't want to let time pass just hoping it gets better. So that's, I think, the main thing is know that you have rights and don't be afraid to, you know, be more aggressive in your advocacy. For parents who want to connect with me, I'm, I actually have, if they want to connect with me by Facebook, it's under Catherine Michael, education attorney. 
My law firm is Connell Michael Kerr, and they can visit our law firm website, and that is um, www.cmklawfirm.com. And then I also have that book that's going to come out both in an ebook form that I've tried to make as affordable as possible, and then a paperback book. And it is the Exceptional Parents Guide to Special Education. It is being released December 1st, I believe, but parents can pre order it. And it's basically made to give you a really easy guide, um, worksheets, what you need to do to prepare for IEP meetings, and to be, you know, take the place of what we often do in our consultations, um, but make it super affordable and easy. Because I know that this is complicated stuff in a lot of respects. If I didn't do it every day, it would be, you know, because again, I, I have children too. I wouldn't have known any of this. And I know there's so much information out there on the internet. There's so much conflicting information. And I think it just can get complicated for parents and they'll just throw up their hands. And I don't want them to throw up their hands. I want them to know that it's sometimes easier than they think. It's just figuring out how to navigate it. Yeah, excellent. Well, listeners, I will have links to all those resources, including Catherine's new book, which congratulations, I am excited to check that out. and. That's very cool to have that resource coming available for parents everywhere. So I'll have the links on the show notes pages. And Catherine, thank you so much for all of this and just so much time you spent walking us through this today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much too. I I have really enjoyed being on and um, look forward to us talking in the future. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, visit tiltparenting.com slash podcast and search for this conversation. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for helping us stay visible so people who would benefit from the show can easily find it. If you want to support the show and help me cover the cost of production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. To support the show, just visit patreon.com slash Tilt Parenting. Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at tiltparenting.com on the box in the bottom where it says join the revolution. Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note for me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Again, you can sign up and learn more about Tilt at www.tiltparenting.com. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.